If you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to Mark chapter 12. Um, and I do want to welcome you again and thank you again for being here with us today on this wonderful Lord's Day. It is a beautiful day. Um, I know it may not seem that way, but cooler weather, uh, cooler temperatures, uh, overcast sky to where I'm not having to squint and you guys aren't having sweat. That's a really, really, really good thing. So um, I hope we are all happy here today to be able to celebrate together. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 34 this morning. These are the verses that Amber just read for us as we continue our series titled The King and His Cross. And this year, this calendar year, we have been walking together through Mark's gospel and learning about our king and his kingdom and the, the kingdom that is both now and not yet. The things that we get to be able to see now in a little bit in part so that we will be able to see everything in fullness later. We've been able to learn how, as Tim Keller puts it, um, to help us understand that it's an upside down kingdom where how we naturally see and think and imagine things to work, in reality, it works completely contrary to that in most ways. Learning that the way up is really down, that to be exalted, we must be made low, that to be filled, we must be emptied, and that the way of honor comes not through an earthly coronation, but through a bloody cross. And as Mark has been moving us with urgency all throughout his story, to get us there and to get us to that bloody cross. He's been doing it so that we can behold our king and his sacrifice to save sinners like me and like you, but not to leave us there, but also to quickly move us to when our king conquers sin and death in the grave, to give us life and hope and rest in him when we come to him through faith and repentance. And we are moving there quickly. We are now in Jerusalem, and just in the next few weeks, we will get to that cross. But as we are getting there, Jesus continues to remind us, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, what it means to walk with Him, to daily walk with Him. And it isn't so much about our actions that He's reminding us. It's about our hearts. Having hearts that honor Him and treasure Him and adore Him more than having a list of achievements done with excellence that we can bring to him. When, uh, when my wife Amber and I, when our boys were little, I would often pray for them and encourage them directly by telling them that I prayed that they would have hearts to love what is right and to love what is good. And one time I had someone ask me, why do I say that I want them to love what is right and love what is good instead of to do what is right and to do what is good? And my answer was simple. If we love what is right and good, we will naturally be moved to do those things. But if we are just doing those things, our hearts can become hard and we end up doing these things out of fear or out of duty with little heart affection attached many times. In essence, what I was saying and what I still say is that I pray and I hope the same things for my sons that I pray and I hope for myself. That my heart would never become cold and disengaged from the delight of faithful obedience. And this is what we see in our text today. So what we're going to look at together today. We see our friends, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, and We've seen them often here in our journey these 10 months. As they perceive Jesus as a threat to their livelihood, 
they are being moved to act against him. And they have been moving to act against him for quite a while now. And now Jesus is on their turf. It's a home game for them. And they are ramping up their efforts to pin him down and bring him to an end. And our text today shows us two confrontations back to back where two of these groups are working in unison for a mutual purpose. And ultimately what we see here is what happens when we detach our head from our heart. What happens when duty overcomes delight that leads to affections being dulled? And this is a warning for everyone here today. And from the jump here today, if you are visiting with us or watching online and you are new to the Christian faith or you're not even a Christian at all, but you are watching this or you are here with us, I do want to welcome you. I want to tell you I'm thankful that you are here. But I also want to say this today is for you. This message is for you. You will hear of the grace of God. You will hear the good news of Christ in the place of sinners, a message that I pray will bring hope to you and can save your very life. But this today is for you as a way of warning, if you are new to the faith, to not let your new love for God and the things of God to actually stop you from loving Him altogether. And so welcome, and I hope this blesses you today. But this text is really a warning for most of us who have grown up around or in the church or around and with other believers. For most of us who know many things and can talk about many things relating to the faith and walking with God. And I promise you this text is encouraging and it ends on a very encouraging note, but it is also challenging. And I pray that it will challenge all of us together this morning. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to dive into these verses together. Let's pray. Father, I do pray as we have already sung that you would speak to us through your word today. Spirit, I pray that you would teach us today. That you would work through weakness in me and all of us here. That if there is cold and dull and hard ground in our hearts, that through your power, Spirit, you would bust that up. And Father, good soil would present itself so that faithful seed of the gospel can fall on it and produce good fruit. Father, I pray that we would be moved to repent where we need to repent today and rejoice where we need to rejoice today and hope where we need to hope today and that we would rest in you anew and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, today we're going to jump together into these verses and as Amber has already read the whole text, we'll We'll look together piece by piece as we journey through here. But what we're going to do today is just ask ourselves a simple question. And that is, what can we learn? What can we learn through these encounters that we see here today in this text? What can we learn from the Pharisees? What can we learn from the Sadducees? And what can we learn from the scribe? And there is much for us to learn here today. And so we start with the Pharisees. Now, a quick bit of context here. Like, like has already been read and like we're going to see here, we're going to see Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And we need to ask ourselves, who are these people? And these are the religious leaders of that time. And they had been in place in some form or fashion for quite some time, even dating back by some accounts at its earliest point to the second century BC. And together, individuals from these groups made up the ruling body of religion and law for the Jewish people known as the Sanhedrin. 
And whenever anything gets political, good things always happen, right? These groups also didn't get along very well. That shouldn't shock us either. The Pharisees were men of the people. Their control was over the synagogues. They were common. They were there among the people. They had more direct contact with the people. The Sadducees, they were the elite, and they controlled the temple in Jerusalem. The Pharisees believed strongly in the absolute sovereignty of God. The Sadducees believed strongly in the absolute free will of man. The Pharisees believed in spiritual beings like angels and demons. The Sadducees rejected these things. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. The reason for this was the Sadducees held strictly to the first five books of the Bible, whereas the Pharisees held to all of the Old Testament as well as written tradition. And then we have the scribes. The scribes are the teachers of the law. They were the men that were actually studying and interpreting the law for the people and instructing the people on how to live this and carry it out. Their loyalty was to the Pharisees because they taught in the synagogues. Now, why that little history lesson? Because without that by way of context, this text today makes no sense. You need to know who these people are and what they are motivated by to see what is going on here. How could these groups who genuinely did not like or trust one another come together for a shared purpose? Because they both felt that there was a common threat to their way of life and existence. And as Jesus has been out and away from Jerusalem primarily in his teaching ministry, this has largely been a Pharisee scribe problem. It's largely been a local synagogue problem. But now as he is in Jerusalem, it is becoming a Sadducee problem as well. And with the Pharisees here, we see more of the same in how they approach Jesus. They are trying to trap him with his words. Let's look together here. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Notice first there in verse 13, the word they... This would be the Sanhedrin, the combined ruling group. They are carrying out who goes where and who comes to him and who speaks with him. And then notice also their purpose. They are there to trap him in his talk. And notice how they begin to trap him. Let's look together there, continuing in verse 14. Teacher, we know that you are true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. They try to trap him with flattery. They're trying to butter him up with flowery speech. And I do want us to notice that what they say about Jesus is absolutely true. They're not saying anything about him that is untrue. They say that he is true, that he doesn't care about opinions, that he's not swayed by appearances, and that he truly teaches the way of God. And these things are 100% true about Jesus but not exactly in the way that they are stated here. The first and the last of these four, they mean what they mean. But the middle two are about perception. That Jesus is true and truly teaches the way of God should come as no shock. He is God. God in flesh, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. See that from John in John 1.14. 
But the other two are backhanded compliments at best. And if not explored carefully, can give us a distorted view of who Jesus is. That he doesn't care about opinions is true. He is the final word. His opinion is the only one that matters. He is the supreme authority over all things, and that is not up for debate. Yes, that is completely true. But that can make him seem cold and calculating and dictatorial. That is not who Jesus is. And then they say that he is not swayed by appearances. But this can make him seem distant and unaffected by what is happening around him. And that is also not true. And this does two things here. It shows that they haven't been paying attention to what Jesus is saying. And it also shows that they are telling on themselves by revealing their feelings here. Friends, I hope you know today that Jesus is not a cold, calculating, aloof dictator. I really hope you know that. No, he is meek. He is humble of heart. And he will give rest to your soul. And those aren't my words made up out of my own head. No, this is what Jesus says about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. But ultimately what these Pharisees are doing is showing how Jesus' lack of playing the religious game has made them feel. They know that he does not have time for their games and their traps. They know he isn't concerned with winning their approval or trying to worry about keeping up appearances for them. Once again, Jesus' own words from earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 2, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And friends, this is good news because none of us are righteous. We are all stained with sin and our best works are filthy rags. And Jesus sees us in our sad state and to be sure, it is worse than a sad state. And he says, come. Come to me. I don't care about your appearance. I don't care about your works. I don't care about your excuses. No, just come to me. I'm enough. He shows he is enough by what he would endure to win those that are his. By suffering on the cross for our sin to win us to God. To provide a perfect finished work that would be acceptable for us. So that when we do come to him through no work of our own, we will be accepted. And then giving us further hope because of his victory over sin, death, and the grave through his resurrection, we all can now have hope for today and forever. And this is what the Pharisees would not see. They rejected this good news and this offer of eternal hope. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one and said, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? He said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. 
And they marveled at him. Look there. He knew their hearts and he knows ours today as well. And the heart of these verses isn't about who we pledge our loyalty to, either church or state. No, it's remembering what is ultimate. Now that the issue of rendering to Caesar here is pertinent. This was a debate among the Pharisees. The specific trap here was in trying to get Jesus to either say, honor Caesar, thereby accusing him of dishonoring God, or to get him to say, honor God, thereby accusing him of treason and getting him in trouble with Rome. So the issue is pertinent, but it's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. We would do well to remember this today as well, church. Jesus says here to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Specifically here for this text, pay your taxes, be a good citizen, show respect. But even more than that, render to God the things that are God's. And by the way, that is everything because he owns it all. And at this they marveled. Marveled. And this is what we need to learn here. Let's not stop marveling at the majesty and mercy of God. Daily worship. Daily remembrance. Daily dying to self. Let's not get so consumed by the worries and delights of this world that we forget the one who is over them all. True, genuine heart worship. Let's not be made to worship out of embarrassment of being caught in hypocrisy. Let's be moved to worship out of a constant remembrance of the mercy and grace God shows us through Jesus. Keeping our heart begins with worship, which begins with taking our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and beholding God in his glory. And that always begins with a look on the face of Jesus. So let's remember to marvel rightly and willingly today. Now to the Sadducees. And right away in verse 18, Mark shows us their issue. Look there with me. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, wrote, Moses wrote us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, Notice the hypocrisy here. They don't believe in the resurrection. Look at this in verse 23. In verse 18, we see and we know that they don't believe the resurrection. In verse 23, they're speaking as if they do. They don't believe in the resurrection, so why are they asking about it? And Jesus' answer to them is hard to hear. And it is a warning for us as well. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
Now about these Sadducees, as I said earlier, this is the elite of the ruling class portion of the Jews. These are the ones who had wealth and prestige. The Sadducees, you had the high priest and the chief priests. You had the very ones who were responsible for taking care of the sins of the people. The ones who should have been providing comfort, instead, according to Jewish tradition, were very cruel, manipulative, and crooked. These that held to a strict, literal interpretation of the scriptures, Jesus calls flat out that they don't even know them. And not just that they don't know them, but they don't even know the power behind them. These men whose task it was to plead for the people, they made mockery out of the office which they have been tasked to serve. And friends, this shows us the dangers of a heart unmoved by the grace of God. Now to the issue of the resurrection here, because the Sadducees held only to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and these books teach nothing of a physical body resu bodily resurrection. They did not believe in it. And this is where Jesus shows how much they and we still have to learn about God and his word. He goes right to the heart of what they would hold most dear in those writings. He goes to Moses in the burning bush. And he goes to where God declares about himself who he is. Where God states about himself, I am that I am. And in that, Jesus points them to the fact that God is the God of the living and not the dead. Look at what he says there. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus spells this out for him there. God was not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus lets them know that they are not just wrong, but they are quite wrong on what they know. And the lesson here is for us to remember to not merely know things about God. But let's actually know God. And yes, we know God through his word. Absolutely. But let's truly and genuinely read and study and know his word. Knowing the scriptures causes us to know the power of God, to see the power of God, to experience the power of God. And one of the simplest and most powerful ways we experience the power of God is in daily confession and repentance of our sin. And I know this for me, that this is a great reminder of the power of the resurrection that these Sadducees didn't believe in. By Christ conquering sin, death, and the grave, he broke the power of fear and bondage to anything in this life. Lust, greed, deceit, theft, anger, hostility, gossip, murder, you name it. 
any sin that seeks to slay you, it has been defeated by his shed blood and rising from the dead. This doesn't mean that this is easy or that victory is easy or that hope is easy. In this life, it will still be difficult, very difficult. But our resurrection hope is that if we are in Jesus, we will be raised again someday to live finally free and victorious with him forever. Believe that, church. Find victory for yourself today in that. And finally, we come to the scribe. And here is where we see great encouragement. The scribe is listening to all of this and he is observing all of this and he sees and hears these traps that are being laid and he sees Jesus putting on a masterclass of how to answer and respond to opposition. And he comes to Jesus with a genuine question. And we don't know anything about this man other than what we see here in these verses. We don't know if his heart was genuine already or if Jesus's words here have swayed him. But we do know that he is earnest, that he comes in humility. Let's look there together in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, the scribes, as I mentioned, are the students of Scripture. They are tasked to interpret and teach the law. And his question to Jesus matters a great deal. Which is the most important commandment? And Jesus sums up all of the law and prophets by quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus 19. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Look there in verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. and Love neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, we are to love God with all of our being. And from that love, we are to love others also. Now to us, we probably, if we have been in or around the church, we have heard this so much that we probably just complete that sentence or phrase as I'm reading it to you there in those verses. And it does seem so simple. But I think if we don't pay attention to it, It doesn't strike us as deeply as it should. Remember, this scribe is coming to Jesus in genuineness. He's not coming in opposition. He's not mounting or presenting a challenge. He genuinely wants to know. He's earnest and he's humble. This scribe knew and taught over 600 commandments in the Torah. Imagine that, 613 to be exact, that he would have been teaching and learning and having to know. And Jesus helps him see the weight and the beauty of the simplicity of who God is by taking all of that and showing it to him in a simple form. 
This is not insignificant. This is not minor. This is major. R.C. Sproul in his commentary helped me see this in great detail this week. When we make what Jesus commands us here insignificant, it causes us to make our sin insignificant as well. This is a simple statement. but It is a massive statement. It covers all of our lives. And there is not one part of our lives where we get this right. Week to week, let alone day to day. And if we are not careful, if we are not careful, we can fail to feel the weight of our sin by making this message too simplistic. A definition of sin I stumbled upon some time ago, and I don't remember who said it. I wish I did. It's great. Is that sin is any feeling or thought or speech, or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all things. Feeling, thought, speech, action comes from us giving our hearts over to things that we have no business giving our hearts to. Feeling, thought, speech, Action, heart, soul, mind, strength. Let's fight to treasure God above all things. And when we don't, let's repent and let's confess quickly and rest in God's grace shown to us through Jesus. And look how Jesus responds in tenderness to the scribe. Scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Look, just read there in 32 and 33. Treasuring God begins with remembering that he is one. And that there is no one or no thing that can compare to him. There's nothing beside him. He is everything. And when we set our heart's affections on him, and our hearts are affected by him, then we can love him and others rightly. It's only when we love him rightly that we can love one another rightly. The scribe got it. He, he truly did. He knew that treasuring God and then living that out in love for him and people, he knew that that mattered more than keeping all the law and offering all the sacrifices. And Jesus encourages him. Let's look there in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus encourages him to continue, not to stop, but but to continue. For the only thing this man lacked was connecting the dots of what he already knew to who Jesus was and why Jesus came. 
And our lesson here is that our time with God and in his word is the pattern that we see here that this man was able to connect with the Pharisees and the Sadducees lacked. He marveled rightly at God's word. And he knew the power behind God's word. And that had a right effect on him. And in this man's example, we see how our head and our heart connect. This man's study and searching of the scriptures had not caused him to lose his heart. And when he heard the living word speaking about those scriptures, his heart was moved to dive in deeper. May we be moved the same today. No matter the condition of your heart today, may you be moved by the mercy and grace of God to love God with all that you have so that you can love others with all that you have so that your affections will be consistently stirred to love God with all that you have. May we never lose our hearts as we pursue deep knowledge of our Savior. And may we find our hearts loving Him more than we ever have before. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what we see in Your Word today. We thank You for these confrontations and these rebukes and these challenges. We thank You for the challenging words of our Savior here. He was not afraid to speak hard truth, and it's hard truth that we need to hear today. Father, we are prone to these same things. We are prone to letting the things that we do be things that we seek to justify ourselves by instead of finding our acceptance in you and you alone. Father, may that not be true of us today. Father, may we not resist you. May we not push against you, but may we run and fall into you. May we love you more than anything as we seek to help others know that as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.